that's when I graduated from SUNY Albany. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in November of 2010. I was hospitalized for it in 2012. By 2013, when I adopted the mindset of, hey, maybe I should take control of my life, that happened right over here, what did I do? I realized I didn't like the situation that I was in. I didn't like the job I was working. I didn't like living at home with my parents, and I didn't like the money I was making. How can I change that? We talk about how do we get from one place to the other? Well, before you can get to your destination, you also have to accept where you're at. And that's where I didn't have that ticket for so long. When I finally accepted where I was at, I was able to make that roadmap from A to B. A, you don't like where you're living. How can you move out? Pay rent. You can't afford to pay rent. Well, how do you do that? Get more money. How do you get more money? Uh, I'll go to the boss at the job I hate and say, I've been here for two and a half years. Would you mind if you gave me an employee review and discuss the pay raise? He said, okay. Came back a couple months later, $5,000 raise. Ooh, hot dog. Move out of my parents' house. I'm making more money. Now that I'm there, I'm living by myself. I'm feeling independent. I start applying to jobs. I'm never going to forget. I was on my lunch break. My old supervisor at the law firm, he's like, hey, so, so Ted, have you given up on this whole weather thing? I said, honest, honest, I don't know. I don't know. As he's saying that, I get an email from an Ian Rubin in Saginaw, Michigan for a job I didn't remember I applied to. A week and a half later, he flew me to Saginaw for an interview. A month and a half later, I was moving to Saginaw for that job. And that's what happened in March of 2013. Fast forward December 2013, weekend meteorologist job in Greenville. I land here. And then three years later, I get offered for the morning anchor job in 2016. That was a shift for me because I've never anchored before. I was afraid to read out loud, but I jumped in. I accepted the challenge, and there were some growing pains along the way. If anybody watched me my first year anchoring, I apologize, and I thank you for putting up with it. But now I'm competent, and I'm confident. But now we sit at 2020 in terms of building a future. What this timeline does not show you is I met a girl. I got engaged. We're building a house. We have a dog, Bruno. Roddy knows Bruno. <laughs> and with that comes pressure, right? Because this whole decade, the choices I made, the responsibility I had was just me. It was just me. Where are my fathers at? Husbands. I'm going to need all your numbers because I'm going to need some advice and some help as I'm moving in the future. Because... You know, I, I, I want to do it right, right? Because for me, responsibility is taking on a whole new meaning. Responsibility is shifting because I'm no longer just responsible for myself. The decisions I made, I was the only one that had to deal with the repercussions. I'm learning the hard way that it's, it's not the case anymore. I'm learning the hard way that when I make a decision, that affects my fiance. She has to deal with that. I can't be like, oh, you know what, guys? After this, we're all going out. I have a lady at home that's, that's waiting. I have a pup that needs to be fed for dinner. So with that, there's different responsibilities. And I, I keep asking myself and thinking, how? How can I embrace that responsibility? Apply it to my life. Apply it to where I am and use that to be 
a good fiance, a good husband, a good father in the future. Use that to be a good member of society because I know that there is power within me and I am able, I am capable. I just have to learn how to direct it. With that, I want to introduce our guest speaker for today. Our guest today is an associate professor of philosophy at Furman University and holds a doctorate in philosophy from Vanderbilt University. Specializing in philosophy of religion and 19th and 20th century European philosophy, today's guest is the author or editor of nine books, including God and the Other, Kierkegaard's God and the God Life and the Good Life, and most recently, Christian Philosophy, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. A popular teacher and speaker, he often delivers keynote addresses to academic businesses and community events. We're lucky enough to have him here today. Some of the groups he's worked with include TD Bank, Greenville County Schools, Ortec Chemicals, Greenville Business Magazine, and Chick-fil-A Franchises. He is the former faculty director for the Furman University Business and Entrepreneurship Boot Camp, former president of the South Carolina Society of Philosophy, and currently serves as the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society. I hope I did that. I pronounced that correctly. Married to his wife, Vanessa, for 18 years and proud father of their 10-year-old son, Atticus. Please help me welcome to the stage Dr. Aaron Simmons. Thanks, Ted. How you doing, brother? Great to be with you. Yeah, good to have you here. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> really excited to be with you. I apologize for the bio. Um, rarely, when I send it out, does it uh, get read very well, because philosophers, <laughs> as my sister says, we just make up words that no one really understands, yeah. and it makes us sound really smart. Um, so anyway, hopefully I sound much better than I actually am, so we'll see how it goes. I Ted, great to be with you. Yeah. Excited to talk about responsibility. I think you're going to blow them away today, doctor, and uh, I guess, like I said, during my research jumping into it, I actually came across a term called moral responsibility, and I was wondering how you could elaborate on that concept and how it could apply in our lives, because I think moral responsibility is something that is very timely in the political culture that we live in, in the current culture that we live in, and how can we have our moral responsibility in check? What, do you, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? That's a good question. So it's important to understand that responsibility, as Ted's definitions or Google definitions helped us understand, may or may not reflect anything about what we understand by moral life. Yeah. So I have a responsibility to pay my car payment every month. But that isn't a matter of right and wrong or good and evil. It's something that I have entered into as a social obligation. I have a responsibility to stop at stoplights because I'm a member of a community that says that's a thing we should do. But that should is not a moral should, right? It's not the same thing as I should tell the truth or I should not punch Ted when he makes me angry. <clears throat> so thinking about responsibility in moral terms invites us to think about where we're going to locate the buck, as it were, as it relates to good and bad. Now, philosophically, there's three traditional ways that people have done this. <clears throat> the first is to locate moral questions as a matter of actions. So actions are right and wrong. This is one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is outcomes. So it's not about the action. It's about the outcome of that action that is right or wrong. So, for example, I might say, well, I should tell the truth because truth-telling is good. That would be locating 
the good at the location of the action of truth-telling. But it might be the case, you say, eh, there are plenty of cases where telling the truth doesn't yield the outcome that I desire, mm-hmm. right? Do I look fat in this? <laughs> it may not be where truth needs to happen, right? So if you think, no, it's not about the action, it's good or bad because of the outcome. Will this harm this person? Is this going to yield more pain than pleasure? Well, it might be a good action that yields a bad outcome. So a lot of philosophers have said we should think about right and wrong at the level of outcome, not action. Third, though, and this is where I tend to come down, is to say, well, it's not really purely a matter of action. It's not really just a matter of outcome. It's actually a matter of character. It's what am I doing to create the habits that make making good choices, making the right choices, bringing about outcomes that I desire, that this becomes normal for me. That's the way I tend to locate understanding moral responsibility, is am I becoming the kind of person that I desire to become at the level of goodness? Can I ask you this? What's more important, the action itself being good or the outcome being good? I think it's if you are a good person, so you've developed that character in the right sort of way, you strive to engage in actions that are good, but to create relationships with others that allow those actions to bring about the right kind of outcome. So, for example, my facetious uh, use of, you know, how do I look in this? If I have a relationship with my wife, for example, who does ask me these sorts of questions often, right? And, and for what it's worth, my strategy in general is tell her it looks awful four times because she's going to change four times anyway. <laughs> so if I have said, no, I think that looks great, and then she changes and she comes back to ask me, I'm like, well, wait a minute, you clearly don't think my opinion matters, right? So because we are anchored in this responsibility as a relational thing, the action of truth-telling, I know how to engage in truth-telling to bring about the outcome that is allowing her to feel good about herself because I know her and she knows me. So our character relationship is what allows the actions and the outcomes to be brought together. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the moral compass of good and bad, that could be objective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I consider good might be considered bad to somebody else, whose philosophy do you adopt? Yeah, this is, this is, <laughs> this is tricky. So very, very smart people throughout history have debated this question, and it turns out that the disagreement continues. I'm actually teaching a course this semester starting on Tuesday that's all about moral realism. Mm-hmm. Moral realism is just the view that says, hey, there are real facts of the matter about right and wrong that are not social products. Right. So whether I should stop at the red octagon or the yellow triangle is a social decision. There's still an ought, right? But it's an ought that is a product of a social history. When it comes to morality, truth telling, uh, things like rape or murder, it seems like we should be hesitant to conclude, well, murder is wrong because we as a society just decided it was a bad idea. So objectivists want to say right and wrong is something bigger than us and it's transcendent of our society. I'm very compelled by that view. Subjectivists say, no, 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 no. Everything is a product of society. 
And the reason that everything's a product of society is because, think about it. What do you think is right or wrong that someone didn't teach you? That your experience didn't help you understand? That your history, as Ted talked about your own history, that your history didn't invite you to then view as right or wrong? Mm -hmm. I'm very compelled by that. Yeah. <laughs> so as a person trying to navigate, how do I figure out what's right and wrong? How do I navigate responsibility and the moral weight of that responsibility. I tend to think that we don't need to be philosophers. We just need to be invested in some sort of vision of what we hope for our lives. So in my classes, we're going to get into these debates, right, and think this through as philosophers. But in our social lives, I don't think that you need to go read a bunch of books in moral philosophy. I think you need to ask yourself, in five years, what do I hope is true for me? And then say, is that vision of myself and my future something that will bring pleasure, bring happiness, and bring flourishing to myself and others? If the answer is yes, then it is likely connected to what you already think is the good. If the answer is no, then it's probably the case that your sense of right and wrong is skewed by your own love of self. Right? It's probably more about you than it is about others. So I think that's really the easiest question and the best way to think about it is not, do we need a God to understand the good? It's a good question. I write books about it. I don't think that's the where we need to land. We simply need to say, what do I hope for? And are my hopes anchored in a commitment to myself as the only one that matters? Or do I understand myself as mattering because I am committed to more than me? I think that's probably the best anchor for understanding. Am I living toward a character that is good? Now, understanding could be the first step, but the second step would come into actually implementation and kind of breaking it down for, for everybody here and, and folks streaming in our Facebook group. When it comes to implementing the practices of whether it be moral responsibility, personal responsibility, responsibility for your family or your community, how do you start with that implementation after the reflection and after the decision on what's good and bad? Because yeah. you, you can see a threshold of entry there, right? You, you can, some people um, don't want to withhold the gratitude. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the experiment. They take two kids, they put them in a room, they put an Oreo cookie in front of them. They say, if you wait five minutes, we'll give you two cookies and they close the door. And they see if the kid could wait five minutes before eating the cookie. Mm -hmm. Some kids can wait five minutes. Some people go ahead and eat that cookie. How can you implement that, I guess, that urge to hold off on the instant gratitude, which might shift the moral compass yeah. and encourage the actual behavior and habits that can be prosperous for them? Yeah, it, delayed gratification is hard. I have a 10 and a half year old. And today... He was deciding to be um, generally repugnant and, and entitled. And so I said, man, you can't ride your skateboard until you do an hour of either reading or playing the drums. Right? And we're trying to get him to develop his music skills. He flipped out. An hour. There's no way. I can't ever do that. And so instead of spending the next 10 minutes reading or playing the drums and working toward that hour, what he did was decide to go and you know knock over his toys and throw his skateboard. <laughs> and I said, Atticus, let me help you understand that now you're 10 minutes further away from where you were. 
<laughs> so delayed gratification is tough, and it's easy to make sense of it as hard when we're talking to children. However, talk to your friends and your colleagues, and you'll start recognizing, wow, it's just as hard for us. Yeah, We like things now. We don't like thinking about when that payoff will come later. I mean, at some level, <clears throat> investing is entirely a commitment to delayed gratification. And people are going broke every single day because they can't make that commitment. Ooh, it's up. I'm pushing the sell button. Right? That reality is something that we've got to start recognizing. Delayed gratification is hard, but it's hard because it's anchored in a very natural phenomenon in the human condition, simply called egoism. We are really impressed with ourselves. Not as much as Kanye, but we are impressed with ourselves. Makes good music, though. I, I'm pretty sure Kanye <laughs> isn't impressed with himself as much as Kanye is. <clears throat> but the reason that we are anchored in ego is actually a really important evolutionary thing. It's what keeps us alive. Our drive not to get eaten by the bear is what connects us to our attachment to the future. The tricky thing, though, is... Another fact of the human condition is we're finite. We are going to die. So somehow we've got to balance. We've got a limited amount of time. And in that limited amount of time, it ain't all about us. That's really hard to navigate. And so the way I think that we've got to transition from understanding or really good principles to action is trying to recognize that Delayed gratification doesn't have to happen in all things, right? So, for example, let's think about investing. I have different pots that I invest in. Some are intentionally short-term, some are mid-range, and some are long-term. And, of course, the whole reality of that is because I also recognizing there are going to be needs financially next week or next month that are different than the needs that will happen when my son goes to college in about six or seven years, which will be different than the needs my wife and I are going to have at retirement, hopefully, you know, 30 years or so from now. So being able to recognize that limited amount of time that we have doesn't mean that every minute of it is identically deployed. So my son is going to have to do that hour of practice or reading, but then he's also going to get to ride his skateboard again. And while he's riding that skateboard, he doesn't have to be worrying about practicing drums or reading. He should be fully present in riding that skateboard and hopefully not breaking something. Hmm. Right? He broke a table the other day, which he was felt horrible. He thought I was going to kill him. And then when he recognized that I wasn't because it was an accident, he was super proud. Because yeah. <laughs> now he's like, that's right. I broke a table. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm such a baller skateboarder. That table didn't stand a chance. Yeah. Like, man. So we flip from understanding to action when we recognize that we've got to be strategic. Next week is Martin Luther King Day. And yesterday I gave a talk at Christ Church Episcopal School to a bunch of 11th graders. So some of y'all may remember 11th grade. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at 11th grade and you think, man, had it all figured out? Of course not, right? You look back and you're like, son, it's a wonder I am still here. <laughs> and yet I'm talking to all of them. And we we're talking about moral responsibility. And I said, let me ask you the following question. When is it the right time to speak up for what you think needs said? Ooh. And I said, it's important to understand the answer is not obvious. 
Because what a lot of them wanted to say is all the time, you always speak up for the good. And I said, okay, you go home for Thanksgiving, and you're disagreeing with that uncle who's telling that racist joke or telling that misogynist joke. Is that the time to make that stand and risk losing family? It might be. It also might be a time when you recognize, you know what? My enemy doesn't have to dictate the time and place of our engagement. Wisdom and being strategic is about more than simply always thinking I've got it figured out. And so I invited them to end the day by thinking about this great reflection on Socrates. Socrates, this philosopher, said he was the wisest. He was told that he's the wisest man in all the world. And he said, that can't be right. I know myself. I'm an absolute clown. <laughs> right, right? Like somebody tells me, like, your work ethic is amazing. I'm like, do you realize I watch Frasier reruns for like three hours a day? <laughs> if they only knew, right? So I said, Socrates, he's told he's the wisest. He says, that can't be right. So he goes around and seeks out all the wise people because he's trying to find someone wiser than him because he can't believe that he's actually that wise. And he comes to realize that he is the wisest because he recognizes that he doesn't have it all figured out. Mm. And so I left them with a way to remember that. And I said, look, some of y'all in the room, finish this sentence. Last name ever, first name, like a sprained ankle. I ain't nothing to play with. (laughs) Y'all know this. Yeah. What if Drake's talking about Socrates? What if it means egoism is not about I'm the greatest ever because I'm better than y'all fools, but being the greatest ever is being committed to truth more than being committed to being right. Ooh. That move is where I think our actions can start being deployed daily because we recognize, you know what? I don't have to do it all right now. So in terms of the reflection piece, because when you mentioned the ego, I'm, my mind starts going exactly into when our emotion boils up, we want it to come out. If we bottle the emotion, it's going to explode. What's the beautiful balance between the two in terms of recognizing the ego, silencing the immediate reaction, but also knowing the time and place to react, when to react, or if to simply just don't engage? Yeah, it's hard. And I, and I think we've got to recognize that failure will be part of whatever we do. However we go forward. You talked about your first entrepreneurial venture. Apparently didn't work out too well. Uh, <laughs> some of you probably would talk about your first marriage not working out well. Or you know the first year of being a parent. That was a disaster for me. I have one kid because I was really bad at the first year of it. <laughs> like, that, I can't do it again. <clears throat> but recognizing that failure is part of action doesn't mean that failure defines us as a fear. So I often ask audiences, <laughs> I've done this with professionals and I've done this with 18-year-olds, and I say, so do this in your own minds. Write on the front side of a sheet of paper, what is the one thing you desire most in life? So what would you write down? Think about that for a second. Then I tell them, flip it over. Now write me down the one thing you fear most in life. Hmm. So what would you write down? There have only ever been two kinds of answers. I've done this in thousands of spaces with thousands of, or hundreds of spaces with thousands of people. And I've gotten only two kinds of answers. About 75% will say some version of what they desire most is success. How many of you might have said something like that? Right? That's entirely noble. It's reasonable. How we understand success is then where the hard work starts. 
right? The other 20%, 25% have some version of they desire happiness, which is interesting, also noble, right? And in fact, if we were pushed, those desiring success probably want success because they think it'll make them happy. And the people who desire happiness are probably going to articulate, well, how do I become happy? I've got to become successful at certain ventures. So these are not disconnected. But here's where it gets interesting. Flip the page over. Almost to a person, those who write success as their biggest desire have their biggest fear as what? What do you think? Failure. Failure. To a person. So what defines them is not only the desire for success, but the fear of failure. Those who desire happiness, or at least articulate it, right, joy, relationships, there's a lot of versions of what happiness could look like, almost to a person have some version of loneliness as their biggest fear. Notice this difference. Success and failure are cashed out entirely about you. Happiness and loneliness are cashed out entirely in terms of relationality. Now, why is this important about when do we know what to do? Because at the end of the day, we're going to fail, but we can choose not to be defined by it if we are able to be intentional enough about not being defined by a problematic desire. St. Augustine says that what you desire determines your identity. So, of course, he argued we should desire God then as our first thing, because it will then define you in ways that allow your priorities to be properly aligned. But if you're desiring success, I got to get it. I got to have more. I got to be more. I got to make more. I got to get that. You know, I, I've never been, I spoke at a conference that was sponsored by Maserati. I asked if they were going to give a Maserati to the keynote. They, 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 that was not part of the deal. <laughs> the keys are out. <laughs> I, I, I'd be fine taking it, right? Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but if that's the goal, got the car. The problem is I've got to figure out how to get up the next day and keep driving it. I had three goals in my life when I was 18. (laughs) They're silly goals. I wanted the truck from Back to the Future. If you all remember that one, that Toyota black one lifted. Mm -hmm. I wanted a wolf just because every Disney movie that has a wolf in it rocks, right? So I've got a freaking black Toyota truck with a wolf in the passenger seat. Like, come on. (laughs) And third, this was kind of added later, I wanted a wife that I could live with rather than someone I couldn't live without. Those are my three goals. Here's the problem. All of them were accomplished at 24. Siberian Husky, not (laughs) a wolf. But I had all of them handled at 24. Successful. Check, check, check. Done. Problem was I turned 25. What happens to trucks? No matter how shiny, no matter how expensive your Maserati, what happens? They get dirty. You're dirty. You're going to depreciate. They ain't going to be nearly as compelling, right? You guys have got new cars. No one can even, like, you know, (laughs) pass gas in it without getting kicked out for the first month. Like, year two, you you knock your Coke over. (laughs) It it won't stain too bad. Because we no longer are committed to that thing because the desire for it has already been satisfied. So if success is driving us, we will always either fail and feel awful or be successful and feel awful. That's the end of the life. That's what we get. What if instead we desire faithfulness? 
We desire constantly to be committed to that which expects us to be invested in how to make those decisions and how to act. So what you're talking about with when you get it, it's almost like the dopamine release, right? Exactly right. So a Maserati, it releases dopamine, but when you get it, dopamine's it's contingent on the future. It's yeah. what you don't have. We always want what we don't have. Got to go faster. So if Gotta you go keep faster. chasing the next thing and chasing the next thing, I mean, it's like a car, a dog chasing a car. When it catches the car, what does it do with it? If we're all that dog, if we shouldn't be chasing the car, what should we be chasing? Yeah, and I think the way to answer this is going to be dependent for where you find yourself and what your background is and where we are as individuals. So you'll notice philosophers are pretty hesitant to give specific advice and specific recommendations for here are the three takeaways and how to live. We're instead going to be invested in inviting you to recognize how to best make those decisions given your context and your circumstances. So you get that car, it's fast, but guess what's going to happen? There will be a faster one. How many of y'all phones? I, I have a brand new iPhone 11 purely because my iPhone 6 wouldn't take a charge anymore. If it had, I would have been holding that thing like until it just died because I don't care. My wife, she's the sort of person who, ooh, the new one has been released. I can upgrade. And <laughs> like, yeah, but, but you're still paying for it. Vanessa, it's like, nah, nah, they, they say it's free. <laughs> oh, God. It's not free. Right? People who lease cars, <laughs> but they trade the lease in every, you know, 12 months or 24 months, so they're always driving a new car. I'm not critiquing that. What I'm saying is that's got to be something that you have decided to be a value. What I'm inviting you to do is to say, what if we stop seeking things that can be achieved and obtained and had? Right? That's still cool and still good. But our real motivation, our real desire is how can I seek things that I can keep seeking? So I wanted that wife I could, that I could live with, right? Check 24, we got married. Boom. I no longer desire that. And it was a stupid desire at that point. What I should have desired was to marry someone that I would continue to get out of bed every day and try to love. So guess what? I'm 42, been married 19 years. That desire motivates me daily. I want to have a son so I can show off having a kid. What? No, I want to be a good father. But anybody who's a father knows that ain't something you're going to finish by next Thursday. <laughs> Done. Check. Like I admit, some days I'm tempted by it. Like, I just won. This was a fathering win. I'm out like the George Costanza. Thank you and good night. <laughs> right? Problem is, he's going to get up next morning. You got to do this again. So my answer is not, here are these practical ways to make good decisions. It's to invite you to say, where are your anchors? Are you invested in becoming someone other than who you are? Guess what? You'll never get there. Because you are who you are becoming. Hmm. You are who you are becoming. The habits that are currently in place will make you become just that person five years from now. Are you instead invested in being who you are becoming? Well, now, what can I do today to make tomorrow look the way that I hope for? 
and then say, what do I desire and what do I fear? If all your desires are checkboxable, I don't think that's a word, right? Philosophy, makeup stuff. If you can check the boxes, done. Got it, got it, got it. You're probably going to not be very prepared to live in light of that success. A lot of rich people jumping off bridges. A lot of wealthy people with those fast cars that we all think we'd give anything for who end up destroying marriages and destroying lives in the process. So invite yourself, what do I hope for? And then ask yourself, hmm, am I living today in ways that are likely to bring that hope about? And then ask yourself, am I being faithful to what I have decided matters? And if you're being faithful to what you've decided matters, you will only ever continue to be invested in that direction. You will keep moving forward. Back to our investment accounts, right? Put a hundred bucks in, walk away, done. No, how do you, you continue to grow that money? Just like we grow relationships, just like we grow in our maturity, just like we grow in our responsibility. When you live into moral responsibility, you are likely to be more comfortable taking on more responsibilities. And you are also likely not to tell others how they should live, but you live in ways that invite them to want to emulate you. Being an example is way more compelling than being able to pass out a note card with seven principles for how to live. And with that kind of last question, what you touched on by living with responsibility, you almost went down the path of leadership. Mm -hmm. And as we talk with, with modern men and we're all leaders within our own lives, how does our personal responsibility and our presence as a leader, whether it be in the home, whether it be uh, in, in, at work or in the community around us, how does that trickle outward? What kind of impact does that have on our surroundings in terms of friends, family, and coworkers? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, I think when we start thinking about leadership in the context of responsibility, which technically you are only a leader if you are bearing some responsibility. Now, it may or may not be moral, right? So you might have the responsibility to balance the books of your company and therefore be able to pay your staff. That's ultimately not a matter of moral obligation, but it is still a leadership role because you are responsible for that task. So it's valuable to think about leadership and responsibility as two sides of the same relational coin. <laughs> Leaders are unnecessary in societies of one. Have you all seen I Am Legend, mm -hmm. Will Smith? To, to talk about what is he a good leader? For his dog, maybe? I mean, leadership is only a quality of existence because we are relational beings. Think back then to the ego. If everything's about you, all your desires are about your swag, about your narrative, about your being able to be better than others, rarely are you then taking up the responsibility for relational existence. We are relational before we are individuals. Think about it. How many of y'all would have survived past your first six months if no one had been feeding you? 
This isn't a hard question. None of us. We exist because others bear the responsibility for making sure we didn't die. So how do we become leaders that are responsible? We first recognize that it's not about us. That our impact can be in lots of ways. But it's important to recognize that part of that hope is also a question of what kind of impact do I want to leave? How do I lead others by modeling for them an invitation for them to live into their own leadership capacity? So I'll give you a option just to make this concrete. <laughs> I think that one way to think about leaders is leaders make marks on people, which they certainly do. Or leaders can leave legacies that invite others to make marks. Think about making a mark. We'll think of a positive and a negative. Positive mark. A leader is somebody who says, you know what? This is an important nonprofit. I'm going to donate a bunch of money. And your name goes on the wall, right? Our sponsors had their names. That's like making a mark. Thank you for your generosity to fund this event. That mark is stamped. It's put up on the screen. It's an important mark. It's a positive mark. There are also kids who will have bruises and scars from the marks left on them by fathers who, in fact, failed to take seriously responsibility. And those marks will scar them for their lives. Leaders who fail to be good leaders in the office place make marks by belittling their employees so that they become unproductive. Right? So we can make marks in one of two ways. But leaving a legacy, think about it this way. <clears throat> what story do I want others to live into having read the book I wrote? What story do I want others to live into having read the book that I wrote? So if you think about your life as this book, we are all authors. What book am I writing? I actually write a lot of books. My son cannot imagine why anybody would read them. My wife can't either most days. <laughs> but the most important thing is not that he reads the books I have actually written and spent years working on. It's the book that I write in front of him every single day. Did I lose my temper today when I was trying to motivate him to practice? I don't think so. Today was a fathering win. Unfortunately, I got to get up tomorrow and try again. But that persistence, that faithfulness lived in front of him daily is the most important book I'll ever write. The same is true for our employees. Are you modeling virtue even when it's difficult? Are you inviting them to be virtuous enough to tell you when you're wrong? If you would get angry at an employee who would be critical of a decision you've made, you probably need to think more about do you love truth more than being right? Would you rather stay in your air so long as your ego is not challenged by somebody who you consider inferior to you? So how do we become responsible leaders? We care about leaving a legacy that would invite others to make moral marks in ways that we would recommend, that we would celebrate, that we would want to foster. And if we do that, I think we've done the most we can. It is tough. It's difficult. <laughs> there is no book you can read that's going to fix this, that's going to handle it. 
And in fact, lots of us probably disagree about which books we'd even read. Some are on the political right. Some are on the political left. Some of you locate morality as an action. Some think it's about outcome. Some of you are really, really social justice motivated. Others are really money motivated. But all of those things can be entirely virtuous legacies that you have left for others. As long as you recognize that the people with whom you disagree are not obviously irrational or immoral, but maybe they are the leaders that you should pay more attention to. Doesn't mean you got to change your mind, but it might change how you act and how you navigate holding the views that you hold. Wow. Gentlemen, Dr. Simmons. Thank you guys so much. Really an honor. Before we, we take a break and feed everybody, uh, how can folks reach out to you? I know there's going to be opportunity to connect out in the reception hall, but how can folks reach out, connect with you outside of this event? Yeah. Um, Probably the easiest two ways, if any of you are on LinkedIn, um, connect with me there. I, I have been amazed at, at the kinds of connections and relationships that have developed for me over LinkedIn with strangers. Just two weeks ago uh, before the break, you know, three weeks ago before the break, I had a guest speaker in one of my classes who Skyped in, who was a woman who connected with me on uh, LinkedIn and actually sent me a copy of a book she had written about surviving traumatic brain injury. She got hit by an ambulance in New York City. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's amazing. And she survived and she wrote this book about how she overcame this. And so I was teaching a class on the meaning of life. And so we ended not with one more philosopher, but we ended by having this, you know, 35-year-old woman from New York who had been through stuff speak to us. And so she and I have now become friends in relationship purely because of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, I'm on there. Um, I, I think it's just Dr. Aaron Simmons. Um, but or Aaron Simmons, PhD. I forget how I've got it on there, but please uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. If you want to email me directly, again, you can do that either on the messages via LinkedIn or my email address is just aaron.simmons at furman.edu. Um, so I, I would love to stay in touch, stay in contact. Um, if any of you are business leaders, entrepreneurs, and I can do anything to be a resource to your company and your staff, please let me know. Um, I'm, I'm very invested in philosophy not being that impractical thing that you survived your first year in college until you got into your business classes. But philosophy is the most practical thing we could possibly take seriously in our own lives. Why? Because philosophy says, who are you? Who are you trying to be? And why does it matter? Every single one of us have got to be good at answering those three questions. And I think when we get good at answering those three questions, we become better entrepreneurs, better innovators, better business leaders, and better humans in society. So it's been great to be with you. Please do reach out. If I can do anything at all, be a resource for all of you. I look forward to being it. Dr. Simmons, thank you once again. Let's give it up. So much. At this time, guys, I could hear some stomachs rumbling a little bit. I promised I'd feed you guys, so we're going to take a little bit of a break. But... As we take a break, I kind of want to invite you guys to join the conversation. We're going to have our panelists come up on the stage and answer some of the questions. I'm going to hand out these question cards, and I have a few pens to hand out as well. You could remain anonymous if there's anything on your mind, anything you're battling right now in relation to responsibility, or really no chains here if there's any topic 
around manhood that you're battling right now that you'd perhaps like to explore a little bit more, we'd be happy to kind of interject that in the conversation and kind of keep it going a little bit and continue to give you guys value because I want to make sure that the points we touch on today is applicable to what you're going through right now in, in your daily lives. So uh, be sure to grab some food from Uptown Company. They're going to be right outside. Also, get another drink if you'd like. And then we're going to be back in about 30 minutes. The show is going to continue at 6 o'clock. And then we're going to continue to move forward with that. So just want to acknowledge and thank our sponsors for making this possible before we hit the break. Top Golf, Maserati Greenville, Maserati Lotus Greenville, Hubert Vester Auto Group, of course, our presenting sponsor for today. And, of course, Catalyst Gym, R-Axis Financial Planning and Investments. Charles, don't kill me. I promise the logo's up there later on. Um, <laughs> but don't forget, you can also connect with us. The Facebook group. If you're not a member of the closed Facebook group, I urge you guys to be part of that. I really think that's where the value from these events can continue. I'm inviting everybody to treat the group as their own. If you have any questions, anything that you're battling, feel free to use that as your resource to kind of just reach out to other guys because your problems are not your own. They're probably going through the same thing. I know when I got a house built, I kind of posted in the group. I'm like, you guys have any advice? I'm building a house. When I got engaged, you guys got any advice? I got engaged. So as we move through life, it's important to have those resources and the other men to kind of connect with. So please use that Facebook group uh, to at your disposal. And you can also follow us on Instagram. And that's our website, themodernmanshow.com. And you can connect with us further. I'll hand these cards out, guys. And we're going to continue this in about 30 minutes. Let's get some grub and eat. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Uptown Company for, for catering for us and keeping our bellies filled. We're going to go over to the panel section right now. And, of course, when we talk about modern men and can surrounding yourself with guys that will keep you motivated, keep you accountable, keep you growing, keep you moving forward, these panelists over here, I mean, they're top-notch. I've been lucky enough to meet each and every single one of them and have them a part of my life, and they continue to not just be friends of mine but mentors. So your panels... Your panelists are Tyler Harris, Tim Pecoraro, Charles Russ, and Jonathan Parker. Please help me welcome them to the stage. <laughs> Fellas, come on down. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you've been to a modern man before, I mean, the origin of modern man really kind of started with these guys, and it started with us just having the conversation. And from the conversation, we, we discussed creating space. We discussed what it means to be a man in today's society. And we realized the necessity for this event to be more than just us in front of cameras talking, but really kind of opening up the conversation. So uh, we continue to do that mission now with, with inviting you guys to be a part of the conversation. If you didn't get to give me question cards, you can come up here to this side of the stage throughout the panel portion. But uh, guys, welcome. How's it going? Pretty good. Feeling Great. good? How are you? Feeling good, man. That's my way of doing a microphone check, so I need everybody to acknowledge my presence. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm on. I flipped the switch. Check, check. Check, check. Making sure we get the levels right. Um, first of all, guys, it's an honor. Thank you for being up here. Thank you for joining me today. And um, we're going to hop right into it because we talked about responsibility. Uh, we were lucky enough to have Dr. Aaron Simmons discuss with us. You heard my experience with responsibility, but we haven't heard from you guys. So in no particular order, I'd love to hear some of your insights on responsibilities and its application to us as men in today's society. 
think oh, you already Sony. have a mic, Charles. You already have a mic, Charles. You, you already got a mic. It's on you, man. Well, it's a clip, I mean, clip. Did you flip the switch? On. You got to flip the switch. I'm messing up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause for Charles, please. Round of applause. Yeah. My man, Charles. <laughs> mic check, mic check. Very we good. live. <laughs> yeah. So again, um, the Not application of responsibility in each of your lives, um, I look at each and every single one of you, uh, you could just read the bios, accomplished in your own right, but continuing to lead your own lives, and it doesn't come without a level of personal responsibility. So how has that helped get you to where you guys are now? Man, I'll, I'll say flat out, like, I'm just now really accepting responsibility for others. Uh, I've always known our responsibility for me. Um, as, as soon as I got old enough to understand, like, what I do uh, creates a consequence. So I've, I've always known that. That was, that was pretty simple for me. But I do have a responsibility for others, especially for others that I bring to this planet, kids. Um, I'm totally responsible for their development and their growth. Uh, but just responsibility for what I leave on this earth, the footprint that I create, uh, what I give to if I give something to anybody out here, I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible for what I gave you. I'm responsible for what I left with you. And uh, 200 years from now, when I'm not here, I'm responsible for the remnants that I left. Mm. I'm responsible for the trash that I threw out the window of my car. I'm responsible for the conversation that I had with you, that you had with your son. Uh, I'm responsible for that. And that... Um, once I figured that out, that totally changed how I looked at life, how I looked at living, and how I looked at my interactions with uh, you guys and whatever interactions I'm lucky enough to have with anyone who's out here. You know, I think something that unique, a perspective that we can look at this tonight, I think there can be a negative connotation to the word responsibility as we talk about it as something that ha we have to have or something that, you know, happens in our life and now we have this. We didn't necessarily maybe ask for it or want it. But if we start looking at responsibility as a privilege, and if we start framing, you know, this, this idea of responsibility as something that we're honored to be able to have. Because as a leader, it's a privilege to be able to have other people look to you as someone that can get things done or someone that can take care of the things that they say they're going to take care of. And to me, I look at that as an honor. Like I'm, I'm honored to be responsible for the things that I'm responsible for. And the main being my life, like it, it is a privilege to be responsible for my own life. And I've been in places in my life where I did not take that seriously. And I think the wake up call for me was the awareness of knowing that I was putting the blame on other people for the things that were happening to me. That I was pointing my fingers outward for the things that were, again, happening to me, not for me. And my really moment of taking responsibility was the moment that I realized that everything was my fault, good or bad, and that I was exactly where I was supposed to be based on the decisions that I had made and the things that I had done, and good or bad, I had to take responsibility for that because if you think about it, the lack of responsibility and placing the blame on other people is literally like handcuffing yourself and, and me handing Charles the, the keys because Charles did this 
And because of Charles, that happened. Because of my ex-wife, this happened. Because of my ex-employer, that happened. And the second that you turn those fingers outward back at yourself and, and just understand that it's your fault, you get those keys back to, to break free. And that moment for me was so liberating. And it was so encouraging because I'm like, man, if I got myself into this mess, into this dark place, into this financial struggle, then guess what? I can get myself out of it. But it would only be through me taking responsibility. And so now fast forward that a few years, I look at it as a privilege. Like it is a privilege for me to know that I am responsible for every single thing that I do, that no one else can really affect me in any way because how I react to it and how I respond to that is all 100% me. And when you're living your life in that way, you're unstoppable because there's no circumstance, there's no person, there's no struggle, there's no environment you can be in that can really affect you in any way because you're responsible for how you react to it. And so for me, like, I think if we can reference and, and use this context of being a privilege, not a burden of responsibility, then it'll really give it a more positive outlook and we'll be more excited to embrace it uh, and to take it a lot more seriously. I think for me, I think I would like with like ego, right? Aaron, like ego, I want to say I've been taking responsibility my whole life, right? Like, but that's not true. I think responsibility, like me starting to take my life and taking responsibility for my life happened right around the age when I was 30, um, coming up on five years. And I was sitting at a beautiful resort and I'm sitting across from someone who's now my friend, just uh, uh, someone who I looked up to. And I spent 45 minutes with this international leader just whining and complaining about how bad my life was because nobody saw my value. Nobody knew how smart I was. No one understood how great I could make it. Like, ah, ah, whine, 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 whine. And was really sad as I did in front of my wife and his wife. Like, so that was her impression of me. Like, Come on, honey, let's go to bed. Right? Like, as I whined for an hour. And he, he cuts me off, like, right in the middle of one of my sentences. And he just looks me square in the eye, and he says, how many years are you going to waste waiting for permission to do what you know you should be doing? Hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then my wife said, can you say that again? <laughs> She's like, make sure that thick head gets it. And he's like, how many years are you going to waste waiting for permission to do what you know you already should be doing? And I think that's where responsibility hits me. Like, I knew what I was supposed to be doing. I just was waiting for somebody to say, hey, go do it, or you're awesome enough, or you're talented enough, or you can do it, or it's going to be easy, or here's a big check, so it's funded. Like, I knew what I had to do, so I had to make the choice. Will I hold myself personally responsible to do what's already been put inside of me to go do? And for the last five years, I mean, all of you have watched it at different levels, but like I've been going after what I believe I was supposed to do and being fully responsible for it either to work or not to work. And if it didn't work, not to let that be a failure, but let that be a stepping stone to the next time it would work. Like my wife and I were just talking about this in 2019. We called it the year of expensive lessons, right? A lot of things didn't work in 2019. And a lot of those things cost a lot of money and they didn't work. But I either could say, yeah, 2019 was a failure and say, look, I, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing this on my own. I shouldn't be taking responsibility. I should be dependent on somebody else. Or we said, you know what? These were just lessons 
that are going to take us the next step in 2020 to accomplishing what we need to accomplish. But responsibility means not waiting for permission to do what you already know you should be doing. If you are, if you know what you should be doing and you're not doing it, that is irresponsible. It's irresponsible. So I hope tonight you give yourself permission to go do what you already know you should be doing. That was great, man. So I realize now that I have to take responsibility, and that's why I'm here. That's all I got to say. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> You're a really bad panelist. Yeah, this is bad. No. Um, so for me, I've had many stages of going through this, but it, the big one that comes to my mind and getting into it, and I'm a big definitions guy, so I love languages. I speak a lot of languages, um, and I like looking up the literal word. What does it mean? Where does it come from? I love lexicons. Okay, because I mean, they'll be in a meet. I'll be in a meeting and someone's talking to me, and you know, I'm not as smart as them and all that. But if they say a word, I'll be like, "Hold on a second. I will whip my phone out and I will look it up." But responsibility is all—it's all around your answerability and accountability, and it deals with three things. It's about your power, your control, and your management. And those three things are what's missing the most. Everyone's chasing knowledge and information. They're chasing how to do things. Everybody's got a hack for something. Shortcut to this. Let me tell you right now, shortcuts don't pay great dividends. Hmm. And let me tell you right now, you want to do the duty and take the process of understanding what power is. No one takes power over you. You give it away. No one has control over you. You yield it. No one has management over you. You yield that as well. Why does a caged bird sing? It's an old Negro spiritual that I love listening to. But you know why a caged bird sing? Because it's free. You can clip its wings and all those things because it still understands the power it has in its voice. It still has to wake up every day. It can still drink that little water out of that cup and pluck on them seeds with a belief that one day someone will open that door. And if I get my wings, I'm gone. They're not sitting there talking about who took their wings and who put them in a cage. It's power, control, management, and they're all you. As Tyler beautifully put, the bug stops with you. He's right. Responsibility is a privilege. Instead of me pulling over going, I'm wearing this hat tonight. I'm coming through Greenville County. I get pulled over. Woo woo. Oh, they profile at me. No, I may have done something. And when he comes up to my window, don't mean this doesn't happen. Don't get me wrong. It happens. But when he comes up to my window and he asks me for driver's license, registration, and proof of insurance, guess what he's asking me for? You have a privilege to drive. Show me your responsibility that you at least have these things because I do need to talk to you about something else. Hmm. And see, we're afraid to validate ourselves. Show me your papers. That's what I want to see from you. Like, just get into the matrix. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Right? <laughs> Isn't that what Morpheus said? I don't know Kung Fu. Yeah. But do you remember when, when Neo did that? I know Kung Fu. What did he say? Show me. Then they got in that little thing. We're inside of a simulation. Right? I mean, literally. We need people that are willing to go with me and show me. That's the kind of responsibility that we're looking for. Simply put, a woman looked at me who was terminally ill. She heard me speak a message. She walked up to me. She could tell me about Les Brown being my influence. All these people. She named them all off on all her fingers. And then she looked at me and she said, Tim, you are more than you've become. And she said, and I believe in you. And I said, what do you want me to do with that? She goes, that's what you have to figure out. 
No one can stop you. You're more than you become. And that is a big deal. For me, responsibility is about your own answerability, accountability, according to the power, control, and management that is yours to deal with and no one else's. That's that. I love it. I love it. I don't know Kung Fu either, so I'm, I'm going to leave you over there with that. <laughs> Our first audience question actually comes from the, the birthday boy. This is actually the second modern man we've had a birthday on the day of modern man. So let's, let's give it up for the birthday boy. Let's give him a round of applause. 26 now. Time to pay health insurance. <laughs> His question says, what advice would you give your mid-20s self? What would you do then to set yourself up for success in the future? I mean, y'all can't expect me to go first on everything. <laughs> so the question was, what advice would I give to my mid twenty self? Your mid twenty self. I don't like that person. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't hang self. out with my. I would have beat self. him up. <laughs> <laughs> You're still uh, paying for some of this. Mistake, right? yeah. <laughs> I think the advice would be ten years ago. Okay, the advice I would give myself is me bottling up my insecurities only hurts me. Like I talk more about my insecurities now having done more than I ever did when I'm in twenties. Cause I thought if I shared what I was fearful about, what I was anxious about, what I had insecurities about that men like this would think less of me, would discount me, would push me aside. And so I would just say for four I mean, I was really sick for a lot of my life, but I would say newly married. Um, we had a, we had a miscarriage within like our first three months of marriage, which was really hard. I didn't talk about it for three years um, because, I mean, vulnerably, I was like, well, did I do something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? Can I not like so I bottled all of that up thinking I'd get stronger for it. And I think if I could look at 26 year old me, I would say, go, go find modern man, go find another guy. Go talk to somebody. And here's the deal. If you share your insecurities with someone, you share your feels with a man, another person, or another person, but another man, and he devalues you and pushes you aside, that's not a man you want to hang around. You just saved yourself a favor. Mm. Like, cut him out of your life and go find another guy and do it again. Like, so that's, that's what I would tell my 26 year old self. Just lay it all out, share your insecurities, share your fears, uh, and, and get the help. Cause it, it took, it took way too long for me to realize that. I think. <clears throat> for me, I think I would tell myself to enjoy the process. I think I would take, tell myself to, to be patient, to understand that you're not going to get everything quickly. You know, there's been a big transition over the last 10 years, really over the last three, um, this transition from short-term to long-term vision. It's very difficult. Um, and for me, it's knowing that if I'm doing the work, if I have the right intent, if I know ultimately where I'm trying to get to, that like, that's the end of the conversation. But trying to control everything and trying to get there faster and trying to, I think, a lot of my pain that I experienced in the last 10 years was purely from my unwillingness to just let things play out and do what I know I'm supposed to do. Me trying to control everything, me trying to get there quick, quickly, 
and maybe not get there the right way and not be the person that I'm supposed to be when I get there. I think for me now, when I look at having a longer term vision and I look at where I want to be 10 years from now, I think of not what do I want, but who do I want to be? And honestly, when I look at my goals now, it's like I separate them as two separate things. I have, you know, short-term and long-term goals. And there are activities that I know from a business standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, there are activities and tasks and things that I have to do in order to get there tangibly. But there are separate goals and things that I have to do and ways that I have to grow and ways that I have to build myself up to become the person that can achieve that. Because the person that can achieve the goal that I have for 10 years from now is a completely different person than I am today. And so it's almost like they run in parallel, but it's the things that I know I'm supposed to do. And I'm becoming the person that can do those things. And I never thought about that stuff 10 years ago, ever. I was always just so goal oriented and driven for the short term. Like I got to make this much money. How many do I have to sell? How many calls does it make to get there? And how can I do them faster? But then when I got there, it was like, okay, now I got to sell this many to make that. And how many calls do I have to do that? And, and the whole success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. It's also really freaking frustrating. <laughs> like, like I would much rather have just been lazy and kicked back and, and been unhappy, <laughs> you know, than put in all this insane hard work and get there and get it and still be unhappy. And so I think for me, the goal is, is how can I enjoy the process, enjoy the journey in getting there so that when I get there, it's just a continual process of, of where you're ultimately trying to go long-term and it's eliminating that short-sightedness. It's a very difficult thing. It was very difficult for me and I'm still, you know, battling through it, but I think it all comes down to who do you want to be? Not just what do you want? Everyone's talking about like, like, what do you want? You have to figure out what you want. I gave a keynote two days ago and a whole slide said, what do you want? Like, as I'm thinking about this, that's probably not good, <laughs> but it, like, what do you want? It's, it's, who do you want to be? Like, I want to be a great father. I want to be a great husband. I want to be someone that when they see me, when they interact with me, that they grow closer to God than get pushed further away. Like that's who I want to be. The what do I want is really just secondary and it's a byproduct of becoming who I want to be that I get what I want. And so if I can focus more of my energy on becoming that person, those daily tasks, weekly tasks, monthly tasks that still have to be accomplished to get the thing or have the success, those are going to come along with it. But I think it comes from a place of passion and purpose versus just you know, like Aaron was talking about the, the thing that you want or the money that you want because there's no fulfillment there. There's always more money. There's always another thing. And so for me, that, that's, that's been huge. And I'm, and I'm still going through that. Now for Tyler, our, our mid twenties were 10 years ago, but for you two, <laughs> no, he's, I just want to point out decades. He's older than yeah. me. You just turned 62, right? Charles? <laughs> <laughs> hey man, my social security benefits are gangsters. So, <laughs> no, look, see, he can say what he wants. ARP is a shit. <laughs> Throw that card down. So, so, all right, we're gonna make this. We we, we gotta we gotta do something because y'all look like y'all have sleep. So, just just repeat these few words with me. 
Do not. Do not. Make decisions. Make decisions. With emotion. With emotion. My man. So, one thing I can actually tell you, this is scientifically proven, and if you're younger and you're in here, don't, don't take this as an offense. This is actually true. The forward-thinking part of your brain, the part of your brain that thinks long-term, that makes sense, it's not even fully developed until you're about 25 years old. My man. Mm-hmm. I do not know who you are, but you are a gangster. <laughs> so, so look, so I can think of emotional moments I had. This is a fact, actual fact, random just popped in my head. We had this day. We went shopping. We were lieutenants of the Army, had a lot of money. My buddies called it 9-11 because I spent $911, <laughs> and the main purchase was some brown leather pants. Ooh. Oh, man. Do you still have them? <laughs> Do they still fit? <laughs> But just just to understand, like, so don't be emotional. Make long-term quality decisions. Think through everything you're doing. And and if you you think I'm wrong, like, I have 16-year-old kids, and I watch them make emotional decisions every day. From they're mad at practice, from they want to try to yell at their mom. I see it. And if you have kids, you see it. If you're that age, you do it. And I guarantee you in this conversation, at least you might see it. Don't make emotional decisions. Make rational decisions. Think about your future. Think about what's going to be most beneficial to you 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And I know that's hard if you're that age. But that's a fact. That's life. That's how we develop. And you know the the people who are the most successful? They're the people who have that influence when they're 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. That influence that sways them to make rational decisions when they don't have a rational mindset. And this is science. Like, this isn't me just saying, hey, boy, you want to make stupid decisions. Nope. Science tells you, like, you're, you're not even equipped to that. Everything you think about is emotional. You want to hook up with that girl because it's emotional. You want to go out to the club, you drink. Because you feel good. You hook up with that girl because it's a sense of conquest and it feels good. So all this is emotional versus I'm going to stay home. I'm going to work on my grades. I'm going to work on my craft, which 10 years from now. So when I graduate, I'm going to be back valedictorian. When I go to get a job, I'm going to have all these great references and all these things that I can apply. Who in here that went to college can actually say they ever thought about that? Exactly. Now, who in here that went to college thought about, hey, I can hook up with that chick. <laughs> if I don't see every hand go up that went to college, oh, they you're lying to yourself. <laughs> so it's, it, it's the attachment to what's real. Um, if I could go back and coach myself, I would literally try to coax myself into listening to a person or a group of people who would tell me like, hey, I understand everything you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. But that is all emotional. It is not about your future success. It is not about what is going to make you happy in the future. And if I could accept those facts and think about those things, I would be a totally different person in life. But I will caveat that with this. We all have to learn and we have to accept everything in your life happens for a reason. So don't think if you're doing something right now that it is a nightmare and it is horrible because you have to learn those lessons and you have to grow. Because I'll tell you like this, if I would have done everything perfect from the time I went to college, so I went to West Point, military academy. 
we get a junior year loan of $24,000, give or take. Now I think it's about 30 because it goes up every year. If I had invested all that money in Apple, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. But what I would challenge you is to say this, what's more important? Me partying on a beach because I invested my money in Apple or me being here talking to you guys? And I'm going to build on what he said, and I'm just going to use it this way because this is how I've, and I think I'm the, I just, I think I turned 36. 36? Yeah, yeah. 35. 35. 35. So I'm so you're just 36. right above him. So I'm right above him by one year. So this happened just not too long ago. But no, if I could crystallize it, it would be we all have an irresistible pull toward irrational behavior. You know, if you're if you're a believer, you're a Christian. I don't know your belief. I don't want to put it on you. But my belief is that we're all prone to wander. Hence the gospel. You know, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And behavior follows belief because no person can consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with how they see themselves. Okay, and if that's a tongue twister, I'll say it again. No person will consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with how they view or see themselves. Know who you are. Spend some time really doing that. If you want to bet on something, make a strategic bet on the creation that you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You were put here, and you will feel the irresistible pull toward irrational behavior. There are TV shows called Snap, right? It's called Snapped. Killer couples, like all these things. And when they interview them and in the police room and they finally admit it, what were you, what was going on? I don't know. What happened? I wasn't what? Thinking. Because your emotions, as Charles so aptly put, do not have the ability to reason. But your mind does. Your mind can be renewed biblically and scientifically. They agree. The renewal of the mind or neuroplasticity, create new pathways of thinking. We have to sit still with that and understand everybody in this room has a big me too movement. Me too. I did that. Me too. I should not have touched her. Me too. I should not have drank that, right? Me too. We have all those things that put us back into the same level where we as human beings understand we are pulled. We are, we are, we are, I mean, gosh. You feel it in yourself and men need to start admitting that and stop trying to treat it like it's a cool thing and treat it like it's a thing that the only cool thing about it is you're going through it too. And man, I can deal with this with you and get off this emotional thing because the emotion don't confuse emotion for passion. They're not the same. Jesus didn't die an emotional death. He died a passionate one. He can't give you his passion, but he can show it to you. And it was out of passion. If you look up passion biblically, it defines the death of Jesus Christ at a crucifixion. That's passion. It's not emotion, someone all amped up and jacked up. That's not passion. They're passionate about what they're doing, but that's not their passion. That's emotion. There's no way to reason with it. You cannot reason with emotion, but you can with your mind. You have the ability Find out who you are. Understand that there's an irresistible pull toward irrational behavior. But I got a me too friend. I got one over here, one over here, and we can talk and we can hold each other accountable. We can help one another and we can step into better things. That's what I wish my 26-year-old self would have realized instead of just 
going with the pull and thinking that he was cool with it. And so was him. And this guy here and not just stopping and going, dude, I'm broken. I need help. I want to go back to my 26 year old self and take some of that advice. That's a perfect segue into our second question, which says, when taking responsibility on things that are extremely difficult, how do you get yourself to accept the challenge and what does the process look like? Hmm. Wow, Ted. That's not for me. <laughs> Ooh, who wrote that question? You need to be on like Jeopardy and stuff. <laughs> That's a good one. So I'll, I'll tackle that one first. I, I think the most difficult responsibilities responsibilities to tackle difficult responsibilities what's the process look like when you're taking on extremely difficult responsibilities so i think the ones that are the most difficult are probably going to be the ones that are most important hmm. oh and so as you begin to go through that process it's understanding the importance of what you're doing it's, really it's understanding the weight of that responsibility it's really good and the only way, again, going back to what I said on the last question, the only way to push through that is to become the person that can. And understanding that a lot of times the way you become the person who can is by failing <laughs> and by going through storms and by going through struggles. Because when you're in that difficult situation that you're having to push through and you're having to fight through and it's painful and it's emotional and it's you feel like there's no way out. You are literally in the training ground of becoming the person that can. And it's understanding that the more difficult it is, probably the bigger the reward is on the other side. The bigger the blessing is that's on the other side of it. And that always sounds great in hindsight. And I understand that that those of you that are going through that right now, it's like, screw you. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand how painful this is. But I do because I've been through it myself and I've seen it play out and I've seen it play out in the lives of friends and family and people that are around me. And it's just, it is a fact that the more difficult, you know, the, the darker, the, what is it? The daylight and whatever, the darker, the blacker, the berry, what is it? Dude. Hey, hey, hey. Keep going, bro. Turn up, buddy. I, I knew you understood. It's okay. Darkest before dawn. Yeah, darkest before the dawn. It's the yeah, darkest before, before dawn. the dawn. That was it. He's going to figure it out in a second. Blackberries? All the blackberries or something, did he? Yeah, right. He's going to figure it out. He know what he want to say. Delete. Delete. Let him go. It's that one time. Hey, you got it. That one thing at band camp. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, analogies. Bless it. But it's always darkest before the dawn. Like the more difficult the thing you're going through, the more important, mm. the larger the blessing, the more impactful, mm. the, the greater the growth. Like it's just the way the world freaking works. Mm. Like the most difficult stuff that I've gone through in my life turned me into the person that I am today. And the more difficult the circumstance, the better I am because of it. And so as you're in that question kind of leads to someone that's about to go through something difficult or that realizes there's a responsibility or there's a process that they're about to go through that's going to be difficult. Man, if you can wrap that up in your understanding on the front end, then when things do get difficult and when the storm does come, 
you can have that insight and that reminder that, man, this is just a part of the process. This pain that I'm going through is a part of the process. And that the more painful it is, holy cow, I'm, I'm, I'm that much closer. In my life, like the moment when it was almost going to break me was right when I was about to be freed from it. And in those moments where I was like, God, oh my, like, I can't go any further. It's like God was like, you're almost there. Like you're, you're right there. Like do not give up now because look how far you've come and look at the person that you have become through this process. And if you can literally just get on the other side of it, will it be smooth sailing? No, but you will be a different person. And so keeping that frame of reference, like the last question of who do I want to become and understanding that that difficulty that's coming is creating that person. And again, <laughs> struggle is a privilege. Pain is a privilege. Difficulty, storms, I promise you in hindsight, you will see them as a privilege. It sucks when you're going through it, but man, is it sweet on the other side. No rain, no rainbows. Yeah. Selfish plug. Shameless plug. Quick little plug. <laughs> Look, man, um, difficulty, difficult is a word. And I've been sitting over here the whole time Tyler's talking. I'm like, it's difficult. I'm trying to figure it out, like what I really want to say. And I want to find it. Difficult is a word that we start to use before we say it's impossible. Because it, it gives us a vent for weakness. We love difficulty. It's just like this guy went to the NBA and he's an all-star, but his parents were rich. They had money. He got to go to camp, whatever. But this guy went to the NBA. His parents were broke. He played on a milk carton crate in the yard. He's not better than this guy, but we love this guy. Why? Because it was difficult, right? We all know that story. I'll tell you this. So we even create struggle. We create difficulty to have something to do. What I'll tell you is I'm not about that difficult life anymore. I posted about it the other day. Look, man, it's not about being difficult. Now, I'm not telling you that you will not have hard times, that you will not have difficult times. But don't create it. Don't overthink it. Don't think that there's not literally a room full of people right here who can probably help you fix 99.9% .9 of the shit you have wrong. Difficulty is something that you create for yourself to make yourself change. Difficulty is the way that you grow. Difficulty is the way you become the person that you are right now and the way you're going to become the person you're going to be. You create a vast majority of your difficulty. It's not hard if you want to do it because your efforts there, your focus is there. You go and do it day after day. You grind, you work at it. And it's not difficult because you want to do it. That's why they say if you do if you love what you do, you'll never work. It's very simple. But we create that difficulty because we want it. We want a picture. And I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm just going to tell you don't make that the bane of your existence. Everyone knows the person that it looks like everything's going smooth and now they got drama. Because they need difficulty. They need it because it defines them. I'm going to tell you, don't let it define you. I want to be the smoothest sailing person you ever met. Every time I see Charles, man, that mug got a new hat. 
He got a jacket. Got some kicks. Damn, he opened a new business. Everything's always smooth. I am totally happy with being that person that you know. I don't need struggle. I don't need difficulty. But that story don't sound as good as he pulled himself up in the bootstraps. If you guys ever, if you guys came to the, the GBO hustle I spoke at, I told you two stories. My grandmother took me with her because she loved me and she said, look, I got you. I got a good job. You need to live with me. I got plenty of money. I'm going to take care of you. Or I can say my parents didn't want me, so I had to live with my grandparents because my life was hard. <laughs> Difficulty. My life ain't been difficult. My grandma loves the shit out of me. Grandma made a lot of money, took good care of me, sent me to a good school. When I said I wasn't going to college, she said, boy, the coach from West Point called you going. Go. My life ain't difficult. My life has been a, a situation after situation where I had to make decisions and I get to choose how I project them. So I tell you right now, don't project difficulty because if you want to do it, you're going to do it. If you don't want to do it, it's going to be difficult and you're going to fail. It's your choice. What's that button they have where from like stables, like that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving to the next question, if, if I can, uh, just to kind of make sure we can touch on everyone's question. How do you motivate people without pushing them away? Well, let me, yeah. Do you do that for a living? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it happens a lot. People say, Hey, Tim, can you come do a motivational talk? And I'm like, I mean, for what? You know what I mean? I mean, I just, how about I, how about I come in and be inspirational and speak to the aspirations? And then if they have motivation with inside of themselves, then they will pursue it. They will let them gravitate toward one another. So I think the biggest thing is, is the best thing to do is it's, it's the show me thing. It's like, show me. That's what people are waiting for. They're waiting for real. That's what they're looking for. Real motivation is going to come in an inspirational way that speaks to what people are hungering and longing for. They hate all this fake bull crap that we put up in front of them. All of the imagery and all these other things, these presentations of yourself, the pseudo self, the civil self that has nine different personalities because you can't just be one person and show up every day and be one person and wear a different hat. Husband person, friend person, neighbor person, work person, but you're one person. You get the honor to be you every day. Inspire people with that. Well, Tim, I'm not very inspirational. Well, good. Let's unlock that inside of you. What do you love? What do you like? What does justice look like for you? If you would ask me what justice was to me, I'd tell you it's apprehending the heart of God toward the broken. That's justice. Mm. See, that's the stuff that you need to start learning to unlock in yourself to connect with people. That's inspiring. And let me tell you about inspiration. When you're an inspirational person, it honors God and it will ultimately inspires people. It will inspire them and it will help them. If there's any juice in the tank for them, even if there's just one drop, a little bit of octane of something in their self, what do you need to start a car? Who knows about a car? And your car won't start. What do you need? Gas. No? Spark, widget, and fuel. So fire and fuel. That's what you need to get it started. That's why the first thing, if you bring in a gas engine, you pull in there, and it won't crank, the first thing they're going to check is, do you have some fuel and do you have some fire? 
That's what people are looking for. Show up with just a little bit of fuel and a little bit of fire and turn the key, baby. Just turn the key. That's how I don't motivate them. Show it to them. Show them. People are waiting to see yours. And to that question, too, if, if I understand, how do you motivate people without pushing them away? Yeah. When you have their best interests at heart, not yours. Like the only reason you would push somebody away is if your pride, ego, and it was all about you. And then you get upset that they don't like it. <laughs> like I remember, well, I don't remember when he did it, but he reposted Gary V posted this, like Gary V posts all the time, but this one talk about when he said, if you have one person following you, you should consider that an amazing responsibility. Man. That one person would pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth and then like it or comment it. You, that's a huge responsibility. And when I think about motivating people, I can tell you when I've poorly motivated people, when I was using you as a way to serve myself. Mm. When I was grabbing a mic, standing on a stage, sitting across somebody at a table, and I talked for 90 minutes straight because I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inspire them. Well, really what I was doing was like feeding my own ego. So if you want to inspire people online or you want to inspire people across the table or in your workplace or in your family or in your home, you have to do it with their best interests in mind, not yours. Like you have to serve with no expectation of return. You have to give yourself away with no expectation of return. And if they never do anything for you, that's fine because your whole point was them. Um, I, I think it was Gandhi or Mother Teresa, both really smart people who said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. So if you want to motivate people, it can't be about you. And, and if you're going to make it about you, just please don't even attempt because you're just going to cloud it for people who actually want to help other people move forward in life. Truth. So I like this next question a lot, and this kind of brings it back towards responsibility and in relation to fostering and adoption. And I think it's a, it's a, big, it's a big responsibility to take on children of your own. But when you're taking on other children, and the reason I like this question a lot, and I, I, I've committed to wanting to raise a son, and I've had conversations with Jess multiple times, like, if God gives us two girls, I want to adopt a boy. And I said, hey, if God gives us two boys, I'm down to adopt a girl too. But So this is actually um, a question I'm interested in hearing some of your insights, or I see the eyes opening hey, up. <laughs> I, I will say this. So... And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be short on this one, but we're looking at that. So in our family, we, we literally talked about adopting. You know, we have three amazing children, but we're looking at that. So the factory shut down in the natural way. And so it's just at 36, 36, (laughs) close the doors fast. 36 mafia. No, no, I didn't say the practice was gone. Uh. I I didn't say that now. I didn't say that. So this is PG. So it was on Facebook. So no, but really we're looking at it. But the thing that makes you feel like that, because so my family and where I grew up, we have a lot of illegitimacy. So we have children who think they know who their dad is. That is not their dad. Okay. And that is the generations that I grew up in. Secrets, hidden things. I feel like more like Hamilton. People don't know who I am. 
I have more of other things in me than what they think I have in me, but it's just the way I've been. So adoption is big. Becoming born again, knowing on Ukrainian side of my family, my mom's side, and then on the other side, we're Catholic. And then I discovered Jesus in the middle of those, okay? And then seeing the Messianic Jew and understanding the word, understanding that I'm adopted, understanding that regardless of any heritage that comes from Israel, from my mom's side of the family, that's still not me and me being adopted and grafted in. And so it's a big thing. So whoever has that on their heart, I do believe the process of fostering is a big deal. And it's very important because you don't want to experiment with children. I see churches do this all the time. Oh, we're going to make them the children's pastor because we don't have anything from do over here. And I'm like, you're going to experiment with the children with this person. Right. You understand what I mean? So take it seriously. And I do think there are great places around here like Miracle Hill that you can talk to different agencies. You don't have to go to China. You don't have to go to Central America to get somebody's baby. To me, some people doing that for trophies. And we got so many children right here in Greenville. Work in your own backyard. Go get some of these children that need love. So fostering is big to me into adoption, but I take it seriously because, gosh, like I've adopted you as my brother, Ted. You're my brother. I mean, these guys are my brothers, you know. Althea sitting over there. That's my brother. I've known him for a long time. That adoption, it removes so many things. So whoever is asking that question, whatever it is, I can't tell you much on how to do it. I can tell you it is a noble and honorable thing to do. And we need more people that are willing, especially you men in here. You can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. And a father is a whole different thing than an instructor. Mm. And that's what I'm saying. So whoever asked that question, I don't know what to do, but I'm saying I'm into it too. Keep pursuing it. And I promise you, you'll find your answers. That's, 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 I'm sorry. Okay. And I like the, the question in terms of an application to elaborate on it and maybe some more insight in terms of not necessarily, uh, when you talk about the responsibility over another human being, you could also have responsibility in terms of mentorship where someone has adopted, like you mentioned, adopting me as a brother. I adopt you as a brother as well, but to have a connection with somebody else who you almost take responsibility over their development. Mm. And that could be in the form of mentorship, not just fatherhood as well. How can that kind of be applied to responsibility? Well, I'll go ahead, Tyler. Sorry. Sure. I saw the mic lift. Go ahead. You curled on it. You're doing curls. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction. <clears throat> Man, so, so the elephant in the room is that you cannot take responsibility for anybody else until you've taken pr- responsibility for your own life. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, like, how do we discuss responsibility for adoption or fostering or having children or being mentors is first having full personal accountability for ourselves. Because until you take full personal responsibility for yourself, you cannot go and look to your left and right and try to help somebody else. It's impossible. And you are setting that child up for failure. You're setting that person up that you are breathing into when you have no breath for failure. And so when I look at the the personal responsibility, we all know that analogy of the oxygen mask, and I won't get this one wrong, I promise. But the oxygen mask and you putting it on first, what most people don't talk about in that story is if you don't, everybody dies. Yeah. Mm. If you don't put it on first, and if I try to help you first, we both die. No, help me. <laughs> But we don't play that out with our actions, right? You can play that out. <laughs> Help me. And so in, it's very clear when it comes to an adoption and fostering. 
children reproduction like that stuff happens and okay crap now i have to buckle down now i gotta take responsibility this is happening adoption is obviously a choice and so i think that the person with that question needs to make sure if they're fully accountable and responsible to themselves before even entertaining the idea of adding another human into that element um and that's something that i would take extremely seriously and that's not a one-person job if there's somebody else in the equation you need to make sure they're in a good place as well because you cannot do it alone. And unless both of you are not only in communication that the expectations and, and the responsibilities and, and what it's going to look like when you do adopt or, or foster, but making sure that you're both good. Like, like, how are you doing? Like, how do you feel about your job and how do you feel about your mental health and, in, in your physical body and like, are, are you good? Because unless you're good and unless I'm good, like somebody else isn't going to be good just because we add them into the equation. And so like, you can't have this discussion without first really taking a look inside of yourself and, and saying, am I, am I ready to do something like that? Can I be responsible for someone else? And am I first responsible to myself? That's what's, that's what's most important. I actually want to pull Dr. Simmons back up real quick to see some of your insight. I kind of gave you a little look or do you want to kind of. I mean, these answers are so good. The only thing that I would add is for those of you who may not be considering fostering or adopting actual children, the metaphor is really helpful. So to foster is to take something on for a temporary amount of time. To adopt is to take it on such that it changes your identity permanently. And I think it's important when we talk about responsibility that um, something a lot of us haven't said, but we all, I think, would say is it, it's very easy to say, oh, that's not my responsibility, right? And I think it's important to be able to say that and then not. <laughs> yeah, so like it, it's yeah. important to realize that you can never do it all, but you can always do more. Um, the example of this is the end of Schindler's List. If any of you have ever yes. seen that movie, where Schindler, who saved all these hundreds of people, and the whole time, remember, he's saying, it's not my responsibility, I can't do everything, it's not on me, but he kept doing more and kept doing more, and then it hits him. And he says, oh my goodness, this watch could have saved ten more, this ring could have saved five more lives, I did so little. And then the person who is there next to him says, look around, look how much you've done. So being able to live a life that says, not, I'm not going to take that responsibility on, but you can be able to recognize, I'm going to foster this responsibility because it's not mine, but this needs done and I can do something impactful and helpful. That's different than saying, I'm going to take this and make it mine such that I then now have to live into it daily. So being able to see the fostering versus adopting metaphor is helpful for being able to say, it's not my responsibility. Well, maybe it is right this second. Is that a face you see that needs you now? I love Tim's definition of justice. It actually connects to a Jewish way of making sense of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. But of course, the question becomes, well, who's my neighbor? Let me figure out, <laughs> how can I ignore those people? I don't know them. They all know me, right? And the answer in Orthodox Judaism is so cool. It says the neighbor is the near and the far. Now notice, 
Who's not near Orphan? That's everyone. <laughs> right? So the whole idea of saying, how can I limit my responsibility should propel us into becoming really good foster parents of responsibility and then recognize that adopting responsibility is a different kind of commitment and that we've got to be very careful because it's worse to say yes and then not fulfill than never to have said yes in the first place. Mm. And so for nine years of my life, I worked uh, at a church here in town in not-for-profits, in social justice, and I spent a lot of time with foster care and adoption. So uh, so I have to say something for at least 36 seconds. When you think, and Tim said it too, you would be stunned hearing the numbers of how many kids don't have a home tonight. Like young boys and young girls who don't have a home tonight. And we might not be able to solve all of that problem tonight. But if you're think when I think about these kids, it's not if you should help them, it's how you should help them. Mm -hmm. You know, when kids are removed from a home, their stuff's put in a trash bag. So one of the ways you can help foster care, foster and adopt is you find those bags that you're not going to use anymore and you go to DSS or you go to Fostering Great Ideas, or you go to Miracle Hill and you say no kid should have his stuff put in a trash bag. Or you find a family who is adopting and you babysit for them because it's exhausting. Or you get approved for an overnight so that you can sit overnight with a foster care family if you're not ready to do it. I mean, these are young kids. And you don't get to be mad at them in 20 years for making bad decisions if you can't help them make good ones this like this year. So all of us have a responsibility. Well, I've got three little kids right now. Okay, We're not fostering or thinking of adopting or having any more. But we give suitcases to fostering great ideas and teddy bears and blankets so when kids are being removed from their homes, they can have something. Like there's... In this realm, all of us can do something. All of us can do something. And it shouldn't be an option we're wondering if we should or should not step into. Uh, anybody ever get, like, an epiphany when you're talking and really think through what's going on in the universe? Like, in the middle of a conversation, you thought you thought one thing, and it hits you that you're totally wrong? That ever happened to anybody? Mm hmm So that just happened to me. Listen to you guys talk. The one thing that I'll tell you is this. Do not, if it's foster, adopt, whatever you want to call it, however you want to take care of a child, don't do it for your own need. Hmm. Do it for love. What I say is that is I've had the conversation, so I've got two twin boys. If you follow me, I'm just going to love them to death, man. They're, they're like the epitome of what you want if you're a dude. They're meatheads. We run into walls. We punch each other in the stomach. We watch football and we hug. What else you need? And they're going to be, they're 16. They're going to be 17 next year. Me and my current girlfriend, we decided we're going to have one. Guess what? Have another man. 100%. Escalade. Oh, yeah. He's coming out. He's a man. Like, he's coming out. He's a man. But it's great. I'm happy. But she she wanted a girl. So I've said, I've had that conversation. Well, maybe we could foster a girl. But it's because she wanted a girl. And that just literally clicked for me in my head. Hmm. These kids aren't wants. They're not. They, they don't. They're not filling a gap for me. But. If you have a hole for love and you, you're like, I want to love someone and, 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 and teach someone. As I listen to all these guys talk, I'm just like, man, I had ass backwards. I've literally told myself for years, well, if I got all this money when I'm old, I'll, I'll get a kid. 
but it was, it was, and I was trying to tell myself that I was doing it for the kid, but no, in my head, even though thinking down that line, it was something to do. I'll be a rich dude with a little kid. I'm cool. Make it for love. If you have a hole in your heart, if you need to spend time with another person, do it for that reason. Don't say love that person before you find that person. Don't pull that person in to fit your need. They're children. They deserve to be loved above all else. And literally that 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 was literally my thought right now. As I had this conversation, I listened to these guys talk. I'm like, yeah, I'd always said I thought that kid because I didn't have a girl. It should never be it should never be about my need. It should be about a kid. We're coming up on time right here. So I want to get these last two and uh, make them really quick. Um, Cause I want to kind of be respectful of everyone's time. Give us an unpopular opinion you hold and what you disagree, what you may disagree with other panelists. <laughs> wait, wait, you, hold on a second. You, said you wanted that to be short. What was it? <laughs> Give us an unpopular opinion you hold. What do you disagree with the other panelists? So, with one of them disagreeing with one of them, Perhaps. I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I love it, man. I mean, gosh, something unpopular. So unpopular that I hold. I'll tell you, unpopular is I don't need to come into a room and teach people diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't need to be participating in DNI movements. I need to walk into a room and look at you and say that you're so important that you matter to God. Therefore, you matter to me. Whoever you are, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you think or you believe. I love you and let me get to know you. So that's unpopular. It is. Because I'm not supposed to start that way. <laughs> I'm not supposed to come in and go, oh, you're human, me too. Isn't that awesome? You know, it's like, let's start there. Oh, you're not an idiot because you don't know where I come from? And I'm not an idiot because, yeah, so that's unpopular. You could tell that I got a little rub on that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You're it's right. not the kind you put on ribs either. It's not a good <laughs> rub. It's not one of them. <laughs> it's so Anyways, I don't, the only, I don't have any, dis the only thing I disagree with them is that Charles doesn't think about us and bring us hats all the time. He gets that jacket. Tyler shows up with shoes that he doesn't tell us about. <laughs> and Jonathan is just this dude is brilliant and he don't pour it out on us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you, you just Ted. I mean, dang, we can't even keep up with you. So that's what I that's my problem. I, I would say I challenge the group. I challenge the group. And next time you guys, uh, hopefully all of you guys come back, um, find some value. Uh, we don't challenge each other enough. Um, I think that's something we've talked about amongst the panel. Um, we kind of check our we've checked our opinions on previous issues. To not have an argument on stage. But I'll tell you right now, I will slap anybody up here <laughs> if need be in the future. But we don't, we don't, we have not gone there. We should go there. Ted, you've discussed it plenty of times. Mm -hmm. But to just say, what issues do you have? Well, that's on us. And I'll tell you something, Ted. Uh, hats off to Ted for putting this on, man. Ted does a great job. He does a lot more than you think with doing this. So thank you, guys. Thank you. So what Ted has instituted, uh, Tim hosts the first one. We meet and we talk, not like this. We talk about like what we have going on, our opinions, because we're all gonna sit on a stage and share a stage together and we can do it. I, Jonathan's hosting the next one um, and we're literally gonna talk to each other and have those those conversations. Those are important, um, you know? 
We don't have to agree on everything we want. Uh, but up on the stage, we have not done that. So whoever asked that question, that's a great question. And we're going to force ourselves into those issues. So we hopefully can bring you guys value and, and good conversations and real answers, not, not fluff. Can I say something really quick here? Um, I'm a Pentecostal Christian. I'm also what I describe as very far politically left. Those do not usually go together very easily. Nope. <laughs> um, I've been asked to leave no less than five churches. Um, I, I write about all this stuff. So, I mean, this is genuinely a thing that almost caused my family and I to leave Greenville because we couldn't find a church that would welcome me, despite the fact that I'm a specialist in theology and take Christianity. Like, yeah. You, you have really some value. That churches yeah. don't like specialists yeah, they don't like in theology. They don't, yeah. and ironically, being a specialist in theology just means I don't have God figured out very well, and the pastors didn't like me trying to ask questions about their having figured God out, right? Mm. So I say that, though, in the following sense. Um, there's a difference in disagreeing, which I, I think uh, Charles is exactly right to say, sh being vulnerable enough to show others how to disagree the right way is probably the most valuable social need right now in our country. Um, and so the other day I posted something on Facebook that was um, politically heavy, maybe, um, and as a just war theorist, I disagreed with the president dropping a bomb on, on the Iranian general. And so I commented on this, but in a sort of, hey, l let me try to speak from expertise, not saying I would be a good president, just saying here's what the tradition tells us about how to do this. And you know what? I think this is problematic and we should be careful. <clears throat> what was interesting to me is the following, and it's relevant to the modern man in this sense. Um, it, it, several people jumped on holding different views, which I think is helpful and healthy and robust and part of what we should do as humans. Um, what's interesting, though, is how quick they gendered the critique. They encouraged me to grow a pair, to be a man, to stop being a pussy. If we think that disagreement requires the other person to be feminized, we have not yet begun to think through what being a modern man should look like. So let me celebrate what you were describing. Please disagree with each other in public. Mm -hmm. Model for other men how to do this in ways that doesn't require feminizing each other along the way. We will work on that. <laughs> so, and last question, it's one sentence. Please define true success in one sentence. In your view, of course. Uh, true success in one sentence that my boys can follow an example that I leave for them. Mm. Meeting the goals, meeting the standard, excuse me, meeting the standards that you set for yourself, whatever they may be. What are we defining? Damn. Success in one sentence. Just kidding. Um, to me, it's just one word. It's progress. It's that's plain and simple, and that's my definition of success and happiness. Progress. I would I would just say living out your life in the fullest, passing that on to the people, and then making sure that yeah, it's it's your utmost for his highest. That simple. I guess I'd say I haven't thought of my answer, but I'd probably say. Being truly loved by those that are in my house, 
and those around me, whatever that may be. With that being said, can we please give our panelists a round of applause? Amazing. Men, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot of value from this. And listening to the theme throughout Dr. Simmons' talk, the panelists, a lot of it touched on the responsibility of knowing who you are. It touched on the responsibility of taking the time to be with yourself, explore, and then having the audacity and the belief within yourself to chase that person and to build that progress little by little and taking control of your life implementing the habits, implementing the the traits that will get you to that person. And when you have a hold on that and you have that responsibility over yourself, you can then be a leader in your home, in your community, in your workplace, and even further as a parent. And to whoever is considering or looking at fostering an adoption, you know, that's down the line too. And the difficultness that comes along the way, uh, I love what Tyler said of, you know, the most difficult is also the most important. Mm. That's something that resonates with me. I underline that. I'm reminding myself of that because as you saw in my timeline, I've come a long way, but my journey is just beginning. And uh, I've even spoken to a few of you guys in terms of catching up. They said, how are you doing? And I said, um, well, I've been told that if, if I'm stressed, I'm blessed. And I'm extremely blessed right now. <laughs> <laughs> so... Going through my process of uh, approaching being a husband, being a homeowner, and in the future, eventually being a father, I'm going to be leaning in on these men. I'm probably going to be leaning in on, on a lot of you as well, especially in the Facebook group as we continue to connect and really taking the responsibility of our lives. I want you guys to leave here encouraged, motivated, and hopefully having the permission. I have no authority to give you that permission, but if you need someone to give it to you, here it is. Go out there, be modern men, and take care of your lives, and uh, be the men I know you can all be. Thank you so much. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Hubert Vester Auto Group. Thank you to Maserati Lotus Greenville. Thank you to our Access Financial Planning and Investments, Catalyst Gym. Thank you to Top Golf Radical Company, and thank you all for being here and those that have streamed live with us on Facebook the entire time. You guys really are what makes modern man possible. So I hope to see you guys at the next one. Big thanks to our sponsors once again. Go out there and be a modern man. Thought it was amazing um, definitely not what I expected um, there were definitely some things that hit that really made me question what I was doing my purpose my goals for sure I thought I had hit certain boxes but goals should always be expanding evolving and it really kind of you know tested me as a modern man and what I should be doing with my life I can't sum up the modern man I can't. I can't. I can sum up me 
but um, the event is, is uh, I love the venues. I love the atmosphere. Um, I love the culture that we all bring here. We, they, nobody, I don't know where y'all are putting this, but nobody's bullshitting me yet. Um, the dudes I meet, they're, they're gentlemen, they, they're honest, and they're vulnerable when I meet them. There ain't no, no facade when I meet them. So I can walk right up to dudes here and introduce myself and we can start talking. This event, what Aaron just said to me, is it makes you think of things that you wouldn't have otherwise needed to think. This brings up topics that you, or thoughts, moments, conversations, that you aren't aware that you need or should have. But if you're willing to get uncomfortable and have those conversations, this is the place.